Welcome to Thoughts from Home, your conservation podcast from the National Conservation Training Center. We're located along the Potomac River in historic Shepherdstown, West Virginia, and are home to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy. Welcome to Thoughts from Home. I'm Mike McAllister. On the 50th anniversary year of the Endangered Species Act, we wanted to talk with freshwater mussel expert Matthew Patterson about one of the world's most endangered groups of animals, freshwater mussels. Thanks for being here, Matthew. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's great to be here. Can you tell us a bit about your job with the Fish and Wildlife Service and your work with freshwater mussels? Sure. I'm a course leader at the National Conservation Training Center in Shepherdstown, West Virginia, It's basically the training center for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. We're out in the eastern panhandle of West Virginia. And I've been here for about 13 years. I primarily teach the aquatic courses for the Fish and Wildlife Service. So macroinvertebrates, freshwater mussels, crayfishes, fishes, anything that lives in the water, I'm teaching classes about it. I created the freshwater mussel curriculum here at the NCTC that has three courses. There's a conservation biology of freshwater mussels. There's a freshwater mussel propagation for restoration And there's an ID course on how to identify freshwater mussels. We've been doing those courses for about 10 years. Before I came to the National Conservation Training Center, I worked for the Fish and Wildlife Service at the White Sulphur Springs National Fish Hatchery, which is also in West Virginia, down in in Greenbrier County. There, I raised endangered freshwater mussels. So you grow them up, put them out in the wild to help wild populations. So that's kind of my Fish and Wildlife Service experience. That's really interesting to hear. I'm a transplant to West Virginia, and I had no idea that there was freshwater mussels in the streams and rivers around here. I never really thought about it. I had always highlighted fish and turtles and other things. So it's been really interesting, you know, working with you and learning a little bit about it. For those that don't know much about these important creatures, can you give a brief overview of freshwater mussels? Sure. They're they're actually a lot like mussels that you would eat in a seafood restaurant. They're just not saltwater. They're freshwater. Interestingly, when I go out in the field, that's always the first question that people ask. Well, what are you doing? You're snorkeling or whatever. What are you doing? Oh, we're, we're looking for freshwater mussels. Well, can you eat them? That's always the first <laughs> question, right? And my answer is always, well, you can, but I wouldn't recommend it. Okay. They live in the substrate. They're in the water, filtering the water all the time. So anything that's coming down the river, they're accumulating. So it could be toxins, heavy metals, anything that's coming down. So that's something that you could be potentially exposed to if you ate them. But that's also why they're really important because they're really efficient filter feeders. So they're just pumping gallons and gallons of water through their filter system. They have gills that work just like a water filter. And as the water passes through, all the contaminants are caught and they either ingest it or package it up. So it helps protect us from those contaminants, but also makes the water clarity really nice for fish and other things that live in the river. There's the term filter feeder, but they truly are filtering the water. Out of curiosity, do they breathe with the same mechanism that they feed with, the gills? or They do. They do. They're actually not gills like we have in fishes. We call them gills because they do use them to respire, just like a fish does. Okay. But they also use them for capturing food. Also, the females brood their larvae inside the gills as well. So they have this really crazy life history, which I think we're going to talk about a little bit. But 
it's just suffice it to say that the gills in freshwater mussels are used for a whole variety of different purposes. That is wonderful to learn about. We touched on it a little bit, but could you describe their role in the ecosystem and what services they provide? Yeah, I've talked a little bit about their filtering capacity. That's really the most important thing that they do. They, They keep the water clean. But they also, because they're burrowers, it basically just means they dig down into the river bottom. They also help to stabilize the substrate. So if you get a really high flow, because they're there holding that substrate together, you're not going to get as much material washing downstream. They also provide uh, valuable food resources for a whole array of, of animals. Raccoons eat them. Birds eat them. There are some fishes that are molluscivores as well, like freshwater drum. So they... They provide food for a lot of animals. And they also, another important thing that they do is because they're filter feeders, they're eating what's in the water column as it's coming by. But there's all these organisms that live on the bottom of the stream. And so they're taking that food from the water column that those bottom dwellers can't access. They're packaging it up and putting it down on the bottom of the stream where things like aquatic insects or fishes that live down on the bottom of the stream can access that food. That's super interesting. I never considered that. I guess now that we've been talking about it, I do notice the shells when I'm down on the rivers. And that was, you know, neat to me when I moved over here. I hadn't noticed that in other areas I've lived. I guess maybe I was being more observant. (laughs) (laughs) That's usually how people or the public interact with freshwater mussels is the shells. Okay. Because they burrow in the substrate, all that's visible a lot of times is their feeding structures. So there's just a little tiny slit that's at the surface. And unless you're trained to look for that or you're snorkeling and you really know what you're looking for, you're not even going to see them most of the time. Okay. But you see the shells. So when they die, the shells wash up on stream and people see that. Does the feeding mechanism come up into the water column from the ground? Is it kind of like a periscope on a submarine or? No, there are marine mussels that do that, that have really long, what they're called siphons. Okay. Freshwater mussels don't have siphons. They have something called an aperture, which is just the mantle tissue comes together in two places and creates this opening. And it doesn't really extend very far out of the shell. It's just kind of a right there. And so the water's just coming right into the shell, into the in-current aperture, and then going right back out the ex-current aperture. Oh, man, I want to ask about hydrodynamics, but I got to stay on topic. <laughs> I bet you there's some cool stuff with that. Mussels have so many unique features and a complex life cycle. What is your favorite thing about freshwater mussels? And maybe do you have a uh, favorite freshwater mussel story? My favorite thing about freshwater mussels is their really unique life history. I started to talk about this earlier, but in almost all cases, there are a few exceptions. Freshwater mussels are obligate parasites of freshwater fish. So for them to complete their life cycle, the larval stage has to attach to a fish to complete metamorphosis. So it's just like a butterfly. goes through metamorphosis. It's just the larval muscle does it while attached to the fish. In some cases, they attach to the gills of the fish, sometimes externally to the fish. They complete metamorphosis while they're attached, and then they fall to the substrate and start their juvenile and then eventually adult life stage. The crazy thing is, is the host, obviously, fish are mobile. Freshwater mussels aren't. So they've come up with these crazy evolutionary adaptations to attract the fish to them. So they may produce a little lure, mm-hmm. like their their mantle is modified to ultimately look like prey item 
of the host. Really? So in some cases, they may have a very specific host. Like one species that occurs out here in the Potomac, the host is a smallmouth bass. Okay. They eat minnows, right? So their lure looks just like a minnow. It has fins. It has eye spots. It has a lateral line down the side, just like really? a, a minnow. And they can raise it up out of the shell and, and move it in the water. Now, there's one on one side and one on the other, and then in between those two flaps that are flapping in the water, they extend those gills that I was talking about that are full of the larval muscles. And when they do that, the fish comes to try to bite that lure, just like a fisherman would do. But what happens is they rupture the gills of the muscle. Mm -hmm. Those larvae are released. They go inside the mouth of the bass and attach to the gills. Wow, what a creative way to reproduce. <laughs> so it's crazy. If everything was perfect in the mussel's world, but there was no fish, the mussel had more food than it ever needed, had everything perfect, but if there was no fish around, it couldn't reproduce. That's exactly right. Okay. And in fact, that is probably one thing that's contributing to their population declines is if there's, say, a dam that's in place that is separating them from their fish host. Say the fish host is upstream of the dam and they're downstream of the dam and they're not in the same area, Mm -hmm. they can't reproduce. A lot of fish populations are declining too. So if they have a very specific species that they used and that species of fish is declining for whatever reason, they can't complete their life cycle that way either. Okay. That is another new thing I hadn't considered. Um, You highlighted smallmouth bass and that one particular muscle. Mm -hmm. A carp wouldn't work. Right. Stuff. Okay. Do you have a favorite mussel species? I think my favorite, and it goes back to this life history thing, is, is a species called the northern riffle shell. It's in the genus Epioblasma, which is a lot of those species are already extinct, and all the rest of them in that genus are listed as either threatened or endangered. Its life history, it actually comes to the surface when the female is it's called gravid, when those uh, larval muscles are charged inside the gills. It comes to the surface and gapes widely, and it has this mantle tissue that's kind of iridescent blue, and it has little lures inside the shell that wiggle around. And fish are just naturally curious animals anyway, so they can't resist (laughs) this bright blue. And if you're walking in a stream, you can see this. If you're standing up in a shallow stream, you can see these iridescent blue muscles. So the fish comes up and investigates these little lures. When it comes in, the, the muscle closes the shell on the fish's head. Okay. Just like a Venus flytrap. Okay. Holds on to it while it's captured <laughs> and releases the larvae onto the fish. That is so, neat. Yeah, it's an amazing adaptation. This is something that's only been discovered in the last 20 or 30 years, that all of the species within this genus Epioblasma probably did this. We don't know for sure some of these extinct species, but they all had some kind of micro lure and gape where they could catch the fish inside the shell. So we conquered space, not conquered it, but we landed on the moon, but we didn't know about how these muscles reproduced. Right. That's really interesting. One question, when the fish bites or investigates the gills and the gills rupture, does it injure the parent? Once the parent gives off the larvas, does the parent reproduce more or is that the end of the life cycle for the parent? No, they can repair that gill tissue okay. and, and be gravid the next year. Wait, cool. So, yeah, it doesn't injure them. In fact... Sometimes the lures can even be bitten, little pieces bitten off and stuff. They can grow that stuff back to you. I'm going to see if I can tie up a muscle lure fly. (laughs) There (laughs) you go. That'll be interesting. Yeah. We hit on it a little bit, but could you uh, talk about a few things that have caused the decline of the freshwater mussel? 
Yeah, I mentioned one, which was, you know, if their fish populations are declining for whatever reason, or they've been physically isolated from them, that causes problems with their completing the life cycle. So they can't recruit new individuals to the population. We talked about dams a little bit. Freshwater mussels, a lot of species really like moving water. As you can imagine, because they're filter feeding, they want that water constantly coming and that fresh oxygen coming by them. And dams tend to impound that water, drop oxygen levels, reduce food resources. So there's some species that just can't tolerate both upstream of dams where a lot of sediment is accumulating can cause a problem, but also downstream of dams where they're doing inconsistent releases of water. And it can be really cold water too, especially if they're releasing from the bottom of the dam, that can cause problems for them too. But I think really probably one of the biggest is pollution in streams, especially new research is showing that the larval stage and the juvenile stage is really highly susceptible to things like ammonia and other contaminants. And of course, our streams are full of ammonia from all of our wastewater treatment plants. So because of this new research, the EPA is actually changing the criteria for wastewater treatment discharges because... Freshwater mussel juveniles are an order of magnitude more sensitive to ammonia than their normal test organisms. Like they'll use things like daphnia or juvenile rainbow trout that they assumed were good surrogates for other things. But it turns out mussels are way more sensitive to contaminants than they are. Do they populate around discharges of, do you see mussel populations around effluescence discharges? You or? tend to not because of that reason. You have to go usually a certain distance downstream of a wastewater treatment outflow before you start seeing mussels again or above it. What is the Fish and Wildlife Service and NCTC doing to help protect and save freshwater mussels from going extinct? Well, I mentioned the, the three courses that we offer. One of those courses is called Freshwater Mussel Propagation for Restoration. And the idea there is we're teaching people to propagate mussels in the laboratory, grow them up to a size that they can then release them. So you're basically completing that life cycle that we were talking about in a hatchery and then giving them a head start. So if their fish isn't present or if there are contaminants that they're having an issue with, we're bypassing that part of the system. So there are hatcheries, both state, federal, and private, including some zoos and aquariums that are propagating endangered mussels. They grow them up to a certain size that they can tag them, and then they release them to the wild to help wild populations. So that's primarily what the service is doing. Obviously, the Endangered Species Act is a big part of conservation of mussel species as well. And you mentioned earlier that it's the 50th anniversary of the ESA. About 100 of the 300 species in the United States are listed already, so they get that federal protection, but then a lot more species are listed on state lists. They might be state endangered or state threatened. So um, that's the primary things that the service is doing, is listing them so they get that protection, mm -hmm. their habitat gets protected, but then also propagating species, especially those that are populations are so low that it's hard for them to recover on their own. The classes that we host are helping learn about them and then also propagating them, producing them for the wild. Right. I saw a press release about 3D modeled mussels or some projects of that order. Can you tell me about that, Matthew? Yeah, sure. We're partnering with the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, the Smithsonian, and the Florida Museum of Natural History on creating 3D scans 
of every mussel species that occurs in the United States. It's about 300 species. The NCTC provided the funding for it, along with some funding from the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. But the Florida Museum of Natural History has these amazing cameras that they can take these super high-resolution 3D images of mussel shells. So it takes like a thousand images of each shell, and then it can put all those together so that the entire muscle is in focus no matter where you're looking oh, at it. Okay. But then you open this in a 3D viewer online and you can rotate this thing 360 degrees. You can zoom way in if there's a particular characteristic that you need to look at, that kind of thing. So it's, it's great for helping people to identify muscles. But you can also take these 3D scans, send it to a 3D printer, and they'll print an actual shell for you. So in a lot of cases, because muscle populations are declining so much, it's hard to find shell material that you can teach other people, hey, this is what this species looks like. So now that we have these scans, we can print shells and provide them to people. It also, if you're holding an endangered species, you have to have a permit oh, yeah. to do that. You can't just go collect species that are listed. So this would allow us to print a replica that's not an actual shell and people could hold that replica and they could have a reference collection at their facility. It'll also be really good for just public outreach to yeah. show people what these mussels look like if they haven't seen them. But in those cases where it's a rare species that maybe their shells only occur at a museum and they're hard to access, yeah. it'll allow us to provide that material for people. That's a really neat combination of technology and learning aids. I never considered having to study an endangered species. I'm not a scientist, so I never right. thought about that. Yeah. But I bet you that would really cause some hurdles. You are actively curious about this, but it's so protected. There's a lot of paperwork you got to do to <laughs> right. be able to play with it or learn yeah, about and, it. Yeah, and you can't determine if it should be endangered or not Yeah, if you can't identify it. So if people aren't identifying these things properly, you may have incorrect information. You could have an endangered species oh. but identified it as something else, and so it's a a false negative, or you could call something an endangered species that's actually misidentified, and you could be providing protection or stopping a project or something, but that species isn't actually there. So it's really important that you know exactly where these endangered species are so that you can protect them in the best way that you can. Very, very neat. What is most exciting to you about this project? I think the most exciting thing is being able to print the shell material. In fact, I forgot to mention this part. The first shell that I saw, like a prototype, I asked for an example before we funded it. Like, I want to see what this thing looks like. Is it really going to look like a shell? You know, They sent me some prototypes. And I was so impressed that I sent these prototypes to muscle experts, friends of mine, that I didn't say, this is a replica. I just said, can you tell me what species this is? Someone sent it to me for identification. None of them said they thought it was a replica. They could identify the species and never said, this doesn't look right or something's wrong with this. And yeah. I told them afterwards that this was a 3D printed replica and they had no idea that's what it was. So they didn't even pick up on it that it was no 3D they, printed. Right. They knew what the species was, but they didn't know that it was 3D printed until I told them. So the technology, not only the imagery online is, is really high quality, but also the printed version is something that People can use and actually identify these species correctly. So it's very exciting. And I imagine with the data that's captured, would someone from the public be able to print their own, download any information and print their own if they were wanted to learn about mussels themselves? Yeah, all these will be available on the Florida Museum of Natural History's website for anyone to download or to look at in the 3D viewer or to download and print. So really anybody could print these out. 
That'd be neat for small classrooms or, or uh, learning centers. Yeah. What a neat option to have out there. Who are the partnering organizations? We've worked with the Florida Museum of Natural History, the Smithsonian, the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, but also actually the idea came from this working group that's called the Chesapeake Bay Freshwater Mussel Working Group. It's a conglomeration of federal, state, nonprofit people that just want to protect freshwater mussels in the Chesapeake Bay. It was at a meeting several years ago that we came up with this idea, and it's just taken a little while to, to come to fruition. But that group, there's been a lot of work in the bay itself of oyster restoration, and they're trying to restore the oysters so that the bay is cleaned up. But this is more of a project of outside of the bay itself. These are the streams that are feeding into the bay. Let's clean that water up before it ever gets to the bay. So if you can restore the native freshwater mussel populations and restore the oyster populations, then everything's going to be that much better. And compounds and improves everything. Exactly. What can our listeners do to help with these underwater heroes? I think the biggest thing people can do is just educate themselves, like listening to podcasts like this, and then spreading the word to as many people as you can, because it's those things that we know the most about, that we care the most about, and that we're interested in protecting. That's the biggest thing you can do is learn as much as you can about freshwater mussels. They really are, in my opinion, the coolest animals out there. That whole life history that they have, the fact that they're really important for cleaning up streams. They're just fascinating animals. And the more you can learn about it and then tell everyone that you know about it, the more likely they're going to be to want to protect their streams and protect the mussels that live there. I know I will be doing some talking to my friends or whenever I'm on the water. I found through learning about this subject, talking to you, I had no clue, you know, that the critters that we don't often see, you don't know about. And I, of course, see trout and I see bass and I see other, you know, turtles. But who would have thought what an interesting little critter was, you know, living just in the sediment of our rivers. I always just saw the after, the shells or... Right. Unfortunately, I never took the time to learn about it and I will change after today. <laughs> I would also encourage people that spend a lot of time on the water to put a, a mask and snorkel on and put your face in the water. People are always talking about snorkeling in the Bahamas and places like that, but our freshwater rivers have amazing diversity, not just of mussels, but fishes and crayfishes and, that are just as colorful and just as beautiful as what you see in the ocean. That's really the, the best way to get up close and personal with these things and learn something about them. So if you're out fishing, buy yourself a cheap mask and snorkel. And every now and then when you need to cool off, just take a look under the water and see what you can find. I am going to take that challenge up. And uh, I got a little bit of time left in, in this summer and I will stick my face in the water and check out and see what cool critters. Sounds good. Let me know what you see. I will report back. Thank you for joining us on Thoughts From Home, Matthew. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the National Conservation Training Center podcast series. If you have feedback, thoughts, or stories you'd like to share, contact us at nctc underscore podcast at fws.gov.